look at here is to notice how that the gospel centers on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We see it there in verse 1 very clearly, don't we? Uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And here is, here is Mark's uh, opening introduction to the gospel. Uh, this gospel, again, that begins with the coming of John and then the presentation of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what I want you to see is uh, a couple of things here. Number one, I want to introduce you to this idea of the gospel. You may think that if I can say it this way, you may think that you really don't need introduced to the idea of the gospel, and I can understand why, why you would think that. You are here today. I, I believe and I hope all of you are here as professing Christians. And let me ask you the question this morning. Are you here this morning as a, as a, as a, as a genuine Christian? Has Jesus Christ truly been the Savior of your soul? Have you understood the weight and the guilt of your sin before a holy God? And the very graciousness that that holy God shows you in Jesus Christ. Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your, as your Lord and Savior? Well, if you have, then, and, 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 and again, it excites me to see so many nodding heads. Uh, if, if, you, if you have, then you have an understanding of what the gospel is, don't you? But I, want to, I do want to introduce you to this word uh, by way of its historical setting. It's kind of interesting. We don't think of this too often, but the word gospel was not necessarily a religious word in the first century. It was a word really that was used of any message of good news. And oftentimes it was associated with the good news of a military victory. Sometimes it was associated with, uh, with, with, a, uh, with political uh, information. And it's very, very interesting that when you look in history, one of the things that you see is that this word gospel was, was used... In, in, a, in a way that will be somewhat surprising to you about Augustus Caesar. When Augustus Caesar was born, and in, in, I believe it was in, in 9 BC, there was a proclamation that went out. There was an evangelion, a good news a gospel that went out. And I want to read you something uh, from ancient history uh, concerning this. Now, there's a reason why I'm doing all this, but just bear with me here in, in, for a moment. In, in, some, in something of a, of, a, of a famous or well-known way, this word gospel was used in the following way. An instance of this is, taken for, is, is the decree of the Greeks in the province of Asia in 9 BC, marking the birthday of Augustus Caesar on the 23rd of, of September the beginning of the civil year. And, it, and, it, and we have the following quotation. This day is a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything, if not in itself and in its own nature, at any rate in the benefits it brings, inasmuch as it has restored the shape of everything that was falling and turning into misfortune and has given a new look to the universe at a time when it would gladly have welcomed destruction if Caesar had not been born to the common blessing of all men. Whereas the providence has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us and for those who come after us to make war cease, to create order everywhere. Whereas And whereas the birthday of the God, quote unquote, Augustus, was the beginning for the world of glad tidings that have come to men through him. Paulus Fabius Maximus, the proconsul of the province, has devised a way of honoring Augustus, hitherto unknown to the Greeks, which is that the reckoning of time for the course of human life should begin with his birth. That was, technically speaking, an evangelion. 
That was, technically speaking, a message of good news to the Romans and to the Greeks. And so the concept of a gospel as good news is not just uh, exclusive to religious language. It was used in the ancient world. And I'm purposely bringing this to your attention because I want to interact with this thought. In our world, there are messages of good news to people everywhere. There are political messages of good news that people embrace. There are messages of economics that are good news to people that they embrace. There are messages of of social uh, change that people embrace that they would call good news. But to this group of individuals that I am speaking to today, who understand themselves to be guilty of sin before a holy God, there is only one message of good news that will do good to your soul, and that is the message that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has come into the world to save sinners. Why do I bring these things up? Because many of these things, sadly, will try to move in on what the, on what the church preaches as the, as the gospel. The church oftentimes will for, preach politics as something of the gospel. It's not. The church oftentimes will, 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 will preach uh, a, a reordering of, of, of society. That's not the gospel. The church will oftentimes preach a new economic situation. That's not the gospel. For many people, that will be the gospel. But I challenge you with this. What is the gospel to you? What is the gospel to you this morning? Is it the fact that Jesus Christ died, yes, for sinners at large, but he died for you individually? This great fact that we can read John 3.16 and put our name in it. For God so loved the world. For God so loved this sinner. For God so loved Ricky that he gave his only begotten son. And so you see this, this idea of the gospel is very, very important that we understand and set it in this setting. Again, it was in this context that the first Christian said, not Caesar, but Christ. Imagine that. Very easy for us, comfortable on a Sunday morning to say Christ is Lord. But what was it like in that first century when the overriding power of the known world was the power and the authority and the peace that Caesar brings? And you're going to sit here and publicly say that Caesar is not Lord, but Christ is? You see what the first thing, what our brothers and sisters embraced and what our brothers and sisters in some places of the world still have to embrace this challenge? And this is why I said, uh, this is why I've said already, it's not, and so in the first century they said, not Caesar, but Christ. In our day we say, not politics, but Christ. Not social reform, but Christ. Not economic factors, but Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel for sinners. And this is why we can never get away from preaching the fact of the the reality of sin. John the Baptist didn't get away from this, did he? That's why he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He preached repentance. Why? Because repentance is that which sinners need before a holy God. And so again, we see this this contrast between uh, the gospel of the world and the gospel of God. And so the idea, again, is to be challenged with this. The idea is to embrace it in this light. This so-called gospel uh, that announced the birth of Augustus was good news for Roman citizens, but it did no good for Roman sinners. You see, and it's the same way with our, with our political messages of good news, or, so, or social reform of good news, or economic good. These, these things will not help you as a sinner, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will. 
I put it this way because there are, so, there are many so-called gospels in our day, which may be good news for some people on a political front or on a social and economic front, but the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the Son of God. I'm sorry, the true gospel is the gospel of, the, of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and this is the good news that God intends to save sinners. This is why we cannot dismiss the idea of sin and still of the gospel. This is why we cannot place something other than sin as the very aim of what the gospel is dealing with and still have the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. You see, we must deal with this idea that God in the gospel is calling sinners. Let's never get away from that idea, that fundamental evaluation of who and what we are. We know that by the grace of God we can say that we are no longer what we once were, but Consider that sentence apart from the grace of God. What would you and I be? Where would you and I be? And so again, let's not lose sight of the reality of the gospel centers in the person of Jesus Christ as coming to save sinners. Well, let me give you some more information about the gospel because again, it is a great theme. As we look through the remainder of the New Testament, we see that the gospel is referred to a number of different ways. It's always fundamentally the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's Mark's point here this morning, that the gospel is always fundamentally the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But it is given other terminology uh, in the New Testament. We find the following. In some places, it's called the gospel of God. We find this in Romans 1, verse 1. In other places, it's called the gospel of Christ. And we find this in Romans 1, verse 16. In another place, it's called the gospel of God's grace, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, speaks of it as the gospel of peace. It brings peace between God and sinners. In Ephesians, Paul talks about it as the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation. And then in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 4, uh, Paul calls it the glorious gospel, and truly it is. This gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel then has Christ, as I said before, as the center of it. It was preached by himself. He preached himself. I've often said this. If Christ were in the world today, what would he be doing? He would be preaching himself. And that's why every preacher must preach Christ. This is why, they, this is why Paul gave the emphasis, uh, again, where, where he had to preach Christ. And so it was preached by Christ. It was preached by the apostles. It's preached by the evangelists of the New Testament. And every preacher worth his salt in our day will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some more information. I hope you don't mind me extending this out. And you can see already why I'm saying that you know how much time we can spend uh, uh, in this gospel. Uh, some, some more information. And this is all taken from the gospel of Mark. It will help us to understand what the gospel is. As we said before, the gospel centers in Jesus Christ. I think that's clearly made. Uh, again, verse 1 of Mark. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Secondly, I want you to understand that the gospel takes the form of a particular rule in life. The gospel set forth in the concept of a kingdom, is it not? We're going to see in a few weeks when our Lord Jesus Christ comes onto the scene and we hear our Lord Jesus Christ preaching. What will he be preaching? Repent for the kingdom of God is, for the, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what I want you to see is this, is that the gospel is set forth uh, within this uh, framework of a kingdom. And what does a kingdom, kingdom suggest to us? The kingdom suggests that there is a Lord before whom we must give an account and whom we must obey. Well, that Lord is Christ himself. And so when you talk about embracing the kingdom, you're talking about embracing Jesus Christ as Lord. Put that in a first century context. What kind of power moved men to say in the face of the, of, 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 of the most uh, powerful uh, authority in the world at that time, what kind of power moved men to make that profession of faith? 
It was the power of the Spirit of God. And that's why when John says, he shall baptize you in the Holy Ghost, what you are seeing here is that this is the, the whole idea of the power of the gospel itself. It moves sinners in this direction. It compels men to believe on Christ as it were. And so again, it's referred to as the kingdom of God, verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. In verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, we see that this, this kingdom is entered into by way of repentance. Uh, in verse 15 of Mark 1, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. These sister graces of repentance and faith always together in the preaching and the reception of the gospel. And then the last thing that we see in, in the gospel of Mark is that the gospel is proclaimed. Three times we see the gospel being proclaimed. And this is something very important I just want you to be aware of uh, at this point. Is that the gospel, as we find it on the pages here in, in the gospel of Mark, the gospel isn't so much a written record. The gospel is rather the act of proclamation. And this gives us a little bit of insight as to what Paul means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation. What Paul is emphasizing is this, is that it's in the very act of proclamation that the power of God and the salvation is made known. It's a very, I don't want to say it's a strange thing, but this is a thing of heaven, I might say. That it's in the very act of preaching. Not just, formally, not just formal preaching as we see it, uh, with what's happening here and now, but in the very act of proclamation as you speak to your friends, your, your loved ones, your neighbors about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we can't lose sight of the fact that the gospel centers on sinners. This is what we, you and I have to emphasize. And the point that's being made here is this, is that the gospel is always a message declared. It's always that which is made known. And in the making known of the message, the power of the message is found. And that's why, again, uh, over and over again, what do we see? The, the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to preach the gospel. This is why oftentimes when I, I just had a very well-meaning friend tell me yesterday that what the church needs is marketing. You know, and I had to say it as nice as I can. The church doesn't need marketing. It needs proclamation. That's what God has ordained. And again, who is going to respond? Only, only those who understand, understand themselves to be sinners. In, in one sense, we're up against it in the world today, aren't we? We've, we've redefined sin. We've put it in all kinds of different categories. But the gospel, again, comes over and over again to those who are sinners with this good news that Christ died for them. Well, again, this is the gospel then. And as I said before, you can see why uh, I'm a little reluctant to, to, to spend as much time in all of these uh, points as we can, but that brings us now to the second sub-point of our first point, which is that the gospel centers in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and that's the designations that Mark gives to, to our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. He refers to Jesus of Nazareth uh, by these two terms, the Christ and the Son of God. Well, very quickly we'll move here, but and I think most of, you, most of us understand what the word Christ is. It's a, it's a reference to his messianic office. It's a reference to the fact that he is truly the anointed of God. He is the one that God raised up. He is the one who was the focus of all prophetic preaching in the past. He is the one that when any promise of God was made in the Old Testament, it all centered in him. And all the way through the Old Testament, we see this. 
as early as Genesis 3.15 and that and when it was what is commonly known as uh, the, the, the first uh, promise of the gospel uh, all the way to the end of uh, the, the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4 at the end of the book uh, we see again this, this promise that there is this coming one and so Jesus Christ is that one he is the one that the prophet spoke of come and see this one who told us all things is not he the one that the prophet spoke of he most certainly was and this is why he's given the designation as the Christ John writes his gospel, why? That, uh, that you might believe these things, and you might believe that Jesus is the, is, is the Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is written for that very purpose. And so, and so Mark uh, identifies our, our Lord uh, as the Christ. But the second way he identifies him as, is as the Son of God. Do you understand, again, in the context of the political world at that time, how potentially inflammatory that statement was? How potentially dangerous that statement was. Didn't we read earlier that, that in, at the birth of, of Caesar Augustus, uh, they hailed the death of a, of a quote-unquote God? And again, it's the authority of the state. It's not just some little group saying that they, whoever they want, they're sending them. No, this is, where the gospel, this is what the gospel came into. And it's Christ that has conquered. Isn't it an amazing thing? There was Caesar on his throne, and there was Christ on the cross. And who do you look to today? Caesar on the throne, a, a name in history. Christ on the cross, a living Lord, a reigning Savior who's coming again for his people. You see, the Galilean has conquered this Christ, this Christ of Calvary. He's the Son of God. Now, it's very interesting uh, when we look at this title, the Son of God, there are, there are a number of ways in which it's used in the scriptures. Sometimes angels are referred to as the Son of God. Uh, sometimes believers were referred to as the children of God, the sons of God. Sometimes the title Son of God is used as a, as, as, as a formal title given to Christ. And, and we might say this, that when the, when the phrase Son of God is applied to Christ, it, it basically has two ideas, uh, a lesser and a greater idea. In one sense, the lesser idea is that sometimes that the title Son of God can be referred to the Lord Jesus Christ by way of his function. You know, uh, 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 we read in Psalm 2 uh, that uh, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. There's a sense in which Christ fulfills the function as being the son of God, which is somewhat parallel to the idea of uh, being the Messiah. But the, the, the phrase the son of God is, is, is used to really ex express his true deity, his, his essential equality with the Father. The fact that the one whom you worship is God himself. As Paul says in Romans 9, verse 5, he is God over all, blessed forever, amen. This great Savior. And again, what we see happening here is that God didn't, and I've, you've heard me say this before, God, in order to save you, didn't just raise up a good man. You're glad when good men are raised up to help you out. But God sent his Son from heaven in order to save you. And this is what we see, and this is what I want to emphasize, because, again, a lot of these times there are a number of ways to, to show how the Scriptures emphasize the divine nature of Jesus Christ, that he is truly God. But I want to, I'm going to use this phrase, the Son of God, in a way in which we see Jesus Christ coming into the world, not in order to be referred to as the Son, not in order that the, the, not in order that the title might be conferred upon him. You see, there are, there are some who would, who would have us think this way. What they would say is that Jesus was only a human, and he had conferred upon him this exalted title, son of, uh, son of, as the Son of God. And we say, no. While the title Son of God can be used in a functional way at times, 
We have to understand that at its essence, it is referring to the divine nature. Why do I say this? Well, listen to the three passages. We can go many more, but listen to these three passages. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to the world through him might be saved. John 3, 17. 1 John 4.10 Here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Did you see in every one of those passages? It's the Son who is already existing as the Son who comes into the world. It's not Jesus of Nazareth fulfilling uh, certain things and then having a title given to him because of obedience. There's a sense in which that's kind of happening. But what's really happening before anything is that it is as the son that he's being sent in. He's already the son. And that concept of Jesus Christ as the son is referring to that eternal relationship that he sustains with the one who is eternally father. The father doesn't become father in time. The Father is eternally the Father. The Son is eternally the Son. And so this is the one who the Father has sent into the world to save you. He didn't just raise up a good man. He sent his Son to save you. And so again, this is how we see uh, Mark designating the Lord Jesus Christ. He designates him as Christ. He designates him as the Son of God, God's anointed Savior, his own Son. What a price given for a people. It is, the, it is this unique person who does everything necessary to bring good news to sinners. Well, that's, again, the, our first point. The gospel centers in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to see is that the gospel was planned uh, by God it uh, was planned by God and foretold by the, by the prophets. Uh, again, the gospel was planned by God and foretold by the prophets. Why do we say this? Well, look at verse 2. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, and he shall prepare thy way before thee. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, and make, it, excuse me, make his path straight. What are we seeing here? Here we're finding that Mark is very insistent to make sure that we understand that this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that which was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's that which was the focus of Old Testament preaching. It's that which was the focus of all Old Testament hopes, that there is this coming one who is coming into the world to save sinners. And so what Mark is doing, he's making sure that we understand that this hope that we have is not a hope that just sprung up out of nowhere, but this hope that we have is a hope that finds its roots, its foundation in the very Old Testament itself. As I said before, we can, we can go all the way through the Old Testament from, from Genesis to Malachi, and we can see the great emphasis uh, that are made by way of the promise that's given uh, concerning uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think what's interesting here is this, is that there's a sense in which Mark is saying about John the Baptist that John is coming, into the, is John is coming to preach. And what's interesting is that there's something of a flavor of the idea here that says that, that, Mark, that John is recommencing the prophetic task. He's not starting something new out of the blue per se. He's recommencing a work that's already begun. Why am I bringing this out to you? Because too often I think from a human perspective, we live in periods of time where we say, is God still working? We look around and we see all of our gray hairs some young boys were happy about that. We see our gray heads and we say, is God still working? But John the Baptist teaches us is this. There was that so-called 400 years of silence. God wasn't done. And God's not done in our day. Let us take up the same message that John the Baptist took up. 
There is coming one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. There is coming one who will save sinners from their sins. And I want you to see here that what we're seeing, this is, this is John recommencing the prophetic work. The work of Jesus Christ goes on. You see, not only was the work of Christ prophesied in the Old Testament, it's proclaimed as well. We'll get to that shortly. But what I want you to see as well, that not only is it proclaimed by way of the prophets, it was planned by God even further back than the Old Testament itself. This is where we have all the ideas uh, that Jesus Christ, again, was, was given from the very bosom of the Father. It was in the very plan of God from eternity past. You know the passages of Scripture that we often look uh, for, uh, for, for this idea. Passages like Ephesians chapter 1, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. There it is. There is just another expression for eternity. There was God in eternity making sovereign choices. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Jesus Christ ordained before the foundation of the world. You see, the plan goes back into, the, into eternity. And then that great passage in Revelation 13, 8, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names, and, uh, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the Lamb, found, uh, book, book of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Here is Jesus Christ as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What do we see happening here? Here we see the gospel planned in eternity, brought to fruition in time. And so what this reminds us of, for those of you that have been in our doctrinal classes, this should remind you of what we learned maybe two weeks ago about the, remember, Article 5 of our, of our church's Articles of Faith, of the plan of God. And remember what we looked at? We believe from all eternity that God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, again, this is, this is where we see these things. Here is the plan of God, not just coming, uh, not just being thought up in time, but the plan of God going back to eternity. Well, that was the second point. We're moving a little more quickly here now. And the third point was this, that the gospel was proclaimed by John and is to be preached unto the end. Well, let me just kind of recap a little bit for you here. You remember first point, the gospel centers in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the second point, the gospel was planned by God in eternity and proclaimed by prophets through time. Uh, the uh, the, th the, uh, the uh, third point now is that John himself is, a, is the one who, who preaches this gospel. The gospel is proclaimed by John and is to be preached unto the end. Now this becomes very important because what we're seeing here is we are, we are being introduced uh, to the man John the Baptist. Let's look here again in verse 4. Uh, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and they were all baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. We're introduced to the person of John the Baptist. Now, I'll be very honest with you, as I was trying to, uh, as I was trying to uh, develop uh, uh, the sermon, um, my, my, my attention, uh, just by way of the amount of space, was continually drawn to John the Baptist. Uh, and and I, was, I, was, I, I found myself you know, thinking, okay, well, this is going to be a sermon on John the Baptist. Uh, I, I, I chose purposely not to do that because I do believe that the controlling theme is verse 1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But you have to understand how large John the Baptist uh, uh, looms on the pages of the gospel. That John the Baptist, in one sense, is essential to the preaching and the teaching of Jesus Christ, to the ministry of Jesus Christ. Every one of the gospel writers make great emphasis on the ministry of John. Some of them, and let me see if I can just uh, catch up with my notes here, just to give you um, a sense of the, the, the importance of John 
And if I can't find this, uh, uh, but it, uh, um, I can't. F- oh, so here we have it. So in, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 15 through 36, that's a fairly good portion of Scripture. John chapter 1, verses 15 through 36 are dedicated to the ministry of John. In Mark chapter 6, verses 16 through 25, Mark devotes those verses to the death of, Christ, to the death of John. In Luke chapter 7, verses 19 through 35, Luke dedicates that portion of Scripture to the imprisonment of John. And then in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15, Matthew dedicates that portion of Scripture to Jesus's, to Jesus's speaking of John as really a true preacher. If you want to know what a true preacher is, look to Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 15, and see our Lord's description of John the Baptist. So John is very, very significant. He's not, again, he's not just a, he's not just a bit player, we might say, in this whole thing. In a sense, John, and you remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said, that there's John, the greatest of all the prophets. The greatest of all the prophets. But yet, the age which is inaugurated through Jesus Christ is so much, again, uh, uh, greater in, in a sense that even the greatness of John compares nothing to the least of those in the kingdom of God. You see, there was a real change that came about. The Roman citizen might thought that everything changed when, when Augustus was born into the world. Oh no, for, for the Christian, everything has changed when Christ came into the world. I have to say this. I was going to say this to, to, my, uh, to my applications at the end, but I'll, I'll bring it out now. Has that difference meant anything to us? Does the fact that Jesus Christ has inaugurated this new kingdom, the fact that Jesus Christ has inaugurated this new age, are we living in light of that? Or are we just kind of going along, doing what everybody else does, except maybe on our Sundays or Wednesdays or whatever? You see, again, this, is, this, this gospel is designed to be truly earth-shattering. Sh- earth it is designed truly to change the center of gravity. Why don't you use that terminology? Think of who and what you were before you came to faith in Christ. Where was the center of gravity? The center of gravity was with self. But now through faith in Jesus Christ, the center of gravity is the person of Christ himself. And everything is lived now from that perspective. It doesn't all revolve around me. It revolves around Christ. Are we living in this way? And you see, it's this message, and it's the nature and the effect of this message, why John must put the message of Jesus, of the coming of Jesus Christ and the coming of the kingdom of God in terms of repentance. It's repentance that's needed. And those who never understand themselves to be sinners never grasp this idea of repentance. This is why repentance sounds like a strange idea in our churches today. Because people fundamentally have, have, have sidestepped the issue that they've sinned against the Holy God. But what does John do? How does he inaugurate the, the, the ministry of Christ? It's by the way of, by the way of uh, preaching repentance. In one sense, John does two things. He preaches repentance, and then he preaches, and then he ministers baptism as the sign of repentance. And I'm not even going to get into all the issues of baptism. You see, we can do that here now. We can get into the kind of baptism that John did and, and what baptism signified. And this and that. We, we just can't, don't have the time for that. But what I want you to see and understand, again, this becomes important. I want to emphasize this idea of John preaching repentance. He preaches repentance because repentance is that which is needed for the well-being of the soul of man. You know, this idea of repentance finds its place over and over again in the Scripture. I think of that passage of Scripture. It's a beautiful illustration of, uh, of repentance. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9-10. through 10. 
Paul says of the Thessalonians, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how that you turned from God to idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus Christ, which delivered us from the wrath of God. You turned from idols to the living God. The center of gravity was changed. So, so much about repentance. What is repentance? Well, in a very technical sense, repentance is a change of mind. We oftentimes don't go there the first in our first kind of a, approach to repentance. We oftentimes go to the effect of repentance. But repentance is fundamentally a change of mind. But it's a change of mind that is so thorough and so deep that it issues forth and it always looks like a change of life. That's what repentance is. It isn't just a change of mind as you're, as you're changing one thing or another uh, you know, intellectually in your mind. It's a change that is whole-souled. The soul now, again, is changed fundamentally by way of this decision concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And so repentance is that change of mind that issues forth in a change of life. And this is what John preached. And it's interesting the, the way in which he sets repentance forth. Did you notice here in, um, uh, in, um, here in, uh, in, in, um, in, in Mark chapter 1 where, where John is preaching uh, this repentance in another setting, uh, John says, repent, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And the way, the picture is kind of interesting. In, in, in ancient times, the, the way of a king was prepared by the fixing of the road, the, the clearing out of the road, the, 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 the elevating of the, of the valleys, the smoothing out of the mountains. And that's the way in which the, the road was prepared so that the king could enter. Well, well, this is what repentance is. Repentance is a preparing of the way. It is the clearing out of the heart of all that which is offensive to God. It is the, it is the smoothing out the, by, by way of lowering the pride of our hearts. It is, again, unfilling in with the grace of God the valleys that have to be gone over. And so, again, the, the preaching of John the Baptist, this, this idea of uh, uh, repentance uh, and, uh, and his baptism. Well, the last thing I want you to see here with me then, and, I, and again, as I said, I, I apologize for being so long here, but the last thing that I want you to see in this passage of Scripture comes down to verses 7 and 8. And he and preached, this is John, and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. I want you to see a number of things here. Number one, please understand that in the thinking of the religious uh, uh, people that day, and I use that term in a, in a positive sense now, not just the, those who had animosity uh, toward the person of Christ, but those who were truly seeking uh, to be right with God, and they signified it by way of repentance and baptism. You have to understand that John the Baptist was, was the brightest star uh, you know, in, in the land of Israel at that time. He was, the, he, he was even asked, are you that prophet? This is how significant John the Baptist was, and I want you to see what he does as he compares himself to Christ. He puts himself not as a lesser prophet than the greater prophet. He explains himself as the lowliest of servants to his Lord. The one who unloosed the shoes of the, 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 the Lord of the house was the lowliest of the servants. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. That's, who, that's how significant this one who is coming and so as he is showing again this, if I can say it this way, this qualitative difference between himself and the Lord Jesus Christ by way of what they are by nature. Jesus Christ is the son of God. <clears throat> Here is John, a prophet. He's also showing this qualitative difference in their ministry. John baptized in water, but Jesus will baptize in the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? 
Well, number one, understand that this is, has all kind of uh, Old Testament prophetic overtones. Again, passages like Joel uh, 2.28, I will pour out my spirit. Passages like uh, Ezekiel, again, I will, put in, I will put my spirit within them. All these Old Testament passages are just screaming, as it were, as John is saying this. But really what is significant is this. John was able to administer that which represented cleansing to the soul. Christ would administer him who actually brings cleansing to the soul. It's the difference between water as an object and the spirit of God as the divine being. That's how different it is. And I have to ask, and I have to ask myself and each and every one of us here today, is that kind of a difference apparent in our lives? Are we living with this kind of divine power? This is not something, again, that just kind of uh, should make us scratch our head. No, the thing that John is making sure that we understand it is that there is a qualitative difference between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of the person of Christ. He baptizes with the one who is, in his essence, the divine spirit of God. And so stop and think of what the gospel is. The gospel is the coming of the Son of God in order that the spirit of God might be given to all those who see and understand their need for a savior. Brothers and sisters, do these things frame our lives? Is this what our life looks like? And And I close with these three points of application. Is the good news of Jesus Christ as the Son of God good news to you? Why do I say that? Because if good news to you is a change of political things, if a good news to you is change of economic things, if a good news to you is change of social things, then these things can be good news. But if those are how you're understanding good news in the ultimate sense... You're missing what the gospel is all about. Secondly, I would ask this. Is the power of the gospel through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit the very power that energizes you and me? Challenging, isn't it? Our lives kind of fall into something of a a mundane pattern. Tomorrow morning is Monday, and some of you may have come to church thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? This is why we have to take time to prepare our hearts. Are we living in the power of the Spirit of God? And then thirdly, thirdly, and I say this something as, a, as an exhortation, but something as a prayer. Thirdly, may God send afresh this powerful gospel that saves sinners and empowers his church to live to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.